There is something that is sobering and powerful about visiting the place where someone famous, someone historical has been buried. A few years ago for our anniversary, my wife Hope and I, we got to go to Italy. And when we were in Rome, we visited the, the Pantheon, which was, uh, used to be this old Roman temple. And it had been converted uh, into a Christian church. And as we're in there, we noticed in one part that there was, uh, there was a, a, a tomb that was in there. And you could look at and realize Raphael, uh, the famous Raphael, was buried there. And we're looking at this and seeing this uh, sarcophagus, this box, and just thinking, that's where this guy, this Raphael, is, is buried. He's not somewhere else. Uh, his, his body is in this box. That it's not in a different city. There's a GPS location where his, his body is located uh, right now. And then later on in that trip, we also got to go to uh, Florence. So while we were there, we also visited uh, the Cathedral uh, St. Croce, where a lot of famous people are buried there, including Michelangelo. And we found where Michelangelo was buried. And then was kind of on a roll, so we kind of kept going. And I found another church in Florence, this old church, and it was under renovation. And had uh, hope, we walked a long ways to, to find this church uh, where Donatello was, uh, where he is buried. And somewhere along the way, Hope figured out what I was doing and said, hey, you don't really care about these people because these were famous Renaissance painters. You're going around, you're visiting the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. She was not wrong. That, that, that is exactly what I was doing. And I would have accomplished it, except Leonardo was missing. Leonardo was gone. He wasn't there. Leonardo, he was somewhere because uh, he had a body and it's somewhere in France and never been there. And it, you can only be one place and his body was somewhere. So didn't get to see him, but uh, three of the, the others. And of course, in reality, these were famous uh, Renaissance painters. And maybe you visited some uh, tombs where some famous people have been buried, been to Arlington National Cemetery and seen the graves there and uh, where John F. Kennedy is, is buried and others. But if you think about famous people and just, just realizing this person was once alive and, and this is where they are and they're buried, the most famous uh, the most important person to ever walk this earth was Jesus Christ. Now, I know there's a lot of kids that are watching this uh, church service at home. So, kids, I have a trivia question for you, and I want to see if you can get this right. So I'm going to ask you this question, and you're going to pick the answer, and you're going to tell your parents and see if you can get this answer right. Okay, so the question is, where is Jesus buried. Where is Jesus buried? I'll give you four options. You can pick one of these. Where is Jesus buried? Option one, A, in Jerusalem. B, in Bethlehem. C, in Grant's tomb. Or D, somewhere else. Jesus is buried somewhere else. So what do you think, kids? Which of those do you pick? Jerusalem, Bethlehem, Grant's tomb, or somewhere else? Tell your parents. Uh, tell them now. Which is your best guess? All right. For those of you that said that the correct answer was none of the above, you are correct. Because Jesus is not buried in any of those places. He was buried briefly 
in a tomb outside of Jerusalem, but that's not where he is buried right now. Because that's what Easter is all about, the fact that Jesus is not in a tomb somewhere, that his body is not somewhere, that Jesus has been raised back to life. He has been put back together into his, his physical body, and he has been resurrected. That's what Easter, that's what the resurrection day that we celebrate here is all about. Jesus has been raised, and there will come a day also when, when everyone is raised, that when believers are raised back to, to new and good life forever and ever. But Jesus is the first one. We've been going through the book of Luke, and we are now up to Luke 24 here on Easter Sunday. We're going to read the first 12 verses. I hope you have your scripture, and I hope you read along with me. And as we do this, I want you to think about, one of the things I want you to think about is try to notice what is missing in this passage. So let's read Luke chapter 24, 1 through 12. And remember, what happened before this? In last week's message, Jesus Christ, he was crucified, and he died, and then he was buried. That's where we left off last week, very sad. Now chapter 24. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. There's these women that are, that are leaving. They're going in the, early in the morning. They had to wait till the Sabbath was over, and now they're getting up at the crack of dawn, and they're going to go, and they're going to find Jesus' tomb, where they, you know, he was buried. They know that um, he was put there, and they want to anoint his body out of a sign of respect uh, with these uh, different spices and different things to help it smell better. And they have been wondering, you know, what, how are we going to roll away the stone when we get there? Um, they were going, they were completely expecting to find Jesus' dead body in this tomb. Verse 2, And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he told you, while he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Jonah and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stopping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. I want to draw out three things from this passage, specifically uh, from some of the statements that these angels uh, made. These two men that appeared there in this, this dazzling clothing, these were angels uh, speaking to these women. And from their words, it's three things that stand out that we can focus on here this Easter. 
And the first is the truth that Jesus was not found among the dead. Jesus was not among the dead. Again, in verse 5, it says, As they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here. As we read the passage, I asked you to think about what is missing in, in this passage. And we've been going through uh, Luke for, for quite a long time. This is the end of, getting towards the end of volume three of Luke. And almost every single message as we've been going through this has been about Jesus Christ. And because he is the focus of the, the Gospels. He's the focus of all Scripture. But we've seen Jesus Christ in all of these and uh, his person and what he's doing and what he's communicating. But what's missing in these 12 uh, verses is you actually, we don't see Jesus in these verses anywhere. Uh, Jesus doesn't make an appearance here. Now, because this isn't just an Easter service, we're going through the Gospel of Luke. Next week, we're going to see uh, Jesus on the road to Emmaus, and we're going to see him, him appear to some of the uh, disciples. So I hope you keep watching, because we're going to continue on through the book of Luke. But in these verses, uh, for our Easter message, Jesus doesn't even show up. He's absent. And you know, that's, that's really the point. That's really the point, is that Jesus is not here. Because these women, they went to the tombs, to the, to the graves, to the graveyard. And these angels are saying, why are you looking for Jesus here? This is just dead people here. This is just a place where there's dead bodies and, and skeletons and uh, decomposing the stuff that used to be full human beings. But this is a place for the dead, not for the living. And so, yeah, Jesus is not here. He's not found among the, the dead. You're looking in the wrong place. Uh, I don't know about you, I love eating pistachios. They're, they're great. And, you know, when you get a bowl of pistachios, I always get one bowl and then you get another bowl to put the shells in. So you're eating them and, you know, taking them apart and you eat the part and you put the shells in a bowl. And maybe sometimes I've had it where you're not paying attention and you grab into the wrong bowl and you just get a big handful of shells. And so in a sense, the angels are saying, why, why are you digging your hands in here? This is, this is nothing but old shells. Jesus is not here. This is just a, the, this is the place of the dead. I do need to talk to you a little bit this morning about, about death. It's something we don't like to talk about, but you know, the resurrection really doesn't make sense unless we think about death and the reality of death and the seriousness and what death really is. And we live in a world where we, we like to push that out of our minds as much as we can. You know, for most of human history, people weren't able to separate themselves from thinking about death as much as we are. And yeah, there's things that we're forced to deal with it, but other times we entertain ourselves. We just uh, imagine that death, that's just what happens after you've lived, you know, 100 years, after everyone gets their, their full life. And um, we, we try not to think about it too much. And so it's not a real present reality. But there used to be a day where they would counsel people that think about your mortality. Think about the fact that there, you will have a, a dying day. But today, a lot of us, we are forced to think about it more than usual because of the situation we're going through with the coronavirus pandemic and what it's doing in our country and our state. And almost every day we're seeing statistics on TV about not just how many people are infected, but how many people are dying in America, around the world, in Michigan. 
and seeing these numbers, we're wondering when is there going to be the, uh, the, the apex of this? When is it going to reach its peak and, and start crescendoing? And, and at, at this point, we don't know exactly when that's going to be. And it can be a frightening thing. It's, it's difficult for us to process because apart from this, we don't think about death all that often. Here's a thought. And let me try to say this in, <laughs> in actually the most encouraging way. The truth is, if we think about it, COVID-19, this coronavirus, will actually not increase the amount of people who die. It's not actually going to increase the amount of people who will die. But sometimes in the news, they talk about how can we keep people from dying? How many lives uh, can we, how many people can we keep from dying? The truth is, if you really think about it, we can't keep anyone from dying at all. We can't even prevent one death. Now, don't get me wrong. We can and we should work hard to keep as many people from dying now from coronavirus. And that's what we should do because we, we care about life. We want to try and keep people alive as long as, as possible. But ultimately, if we're thinking how many people can we keep from dying at all, we, we just can't. Death is something that is, for now, is here to stay. And year after year, do you know how many people actually die in the United States per year? According to the Center of Disease Control, uh, the latest um, fully tabulated year, 2018, in the United States, 2,839,205. That's on average per day, 7,778. And that's even when things are normal. And pretty much every year it's about the same, 2.8, 2.9 uh, million people. In, in the top three things, heart attacks, cancer, accidents, that doesn't even include how many people die from abortion. In Michigan, 2018, the total was 98,985. That's about 271 people on average per day, and that's even when it's a, it's a normal year. Here's another statistic. The amount of people who will die at one point in their life is 100%. Because death is something that's going to happen to all of us. We think of different things, um, you know, through history. You think of the Black Plague in Europe. That there were times in Europe when the plague went through and wiped out one-third to one-half of the population. But even if the Black Plague had not existed, even if they had cured it on uh, the, the first person, if they had done that, all of those people would still be dead. Even if they cured every disease except for one, you realize we would all die of that one disease then. If they could cure, if they could prevent all deaths except for, and all accidents except for dying from having an airplane drop a piano on your head, then eventually you would live long enough to die from having a piano dropped on your head. Just the, the reality that in this world, death is an unavoidable certainty. And unless Christ comes back first, that, that is what is going to happen. And so what the Bible can tell us is the what and the why of death. And that's what we need to look at. That's what's really going to help us and be important. The what of death is not just that we, we stop working, 
But death ultimately is a separation. It's a separation of the two parts that make you up. You have a physical, material part, and you have an immaterial part, your, your soul or your spirit, or however you want to put that together. One part is physical, one part is uh, immaterial, and they're meant to be together. That's what is, is good. That is what is natural. And so death is this breaking apart of those two, so that what is meant to be together is no longer together. You're separated from your body. That is the what of death. But the Bible also explains the why of death. Because when Adam and Eve were created and put in the garden, uh, they were not created in a way that they, were, they had to die. They could have been, were, were supposed to go on living forever, but they were told that the day that they sinned, that they would die, in the sense that death would be introduced into this world. And Romans 5.12 tells us, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Because uh, Adam, our, our great original head of humanity, because he sinned, it, it fractured this world, it broke this world, and it introduced death to us all, that there comes a day where we, we reap this, this judgment. And whether we live a few days or whether we live a hundred years, there comes a time where we are going to, we, we are going to die. If you ask, is death natural? Well, you have to think, what do you mean by that? Because we think death is a natural part of life. Well, it is now in a, in a fallen world, in a world after Genesis 3. It's, it's a part of fallen human nature. But it, death is not a part of God's original nature and how he created us. That death is not a part of our original design. Death is something that, that came into this world as a consequence of our rebellion against God. And, you know, this means that even if someone dies at 120 years old, people might say, well, that person, you know, they lived a good full life. And, well, even if someone dies at 120 years old, that death is still a tragedy. It is still a tragedy because we weren't supposed to originally die at all. But because of sin... Death has entered into this world. We also see from the angel statements, verses 6 and 7, second point, about Jesus' death. Jesus' death had to happen. Jesus' death had to happen. Let me read verse uh, 6 and 7 again. He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, and be crucified. We'll stop right there. It says he must be delivered into the, the hands of these wicked people, and he must be crucified and killed in this way. Let me give you two reasons why it's true that this must have happened, this had to happen. And the first is because God planned this. This was foreordained. This was part of God's big plan for how this world would unfold. And we know this from, there's Old Testament prophecies. You could read again Isaiah 53 and other places in the Old Testament, but also Jesus predicted this. It said that this, he told his disciples this was going to happen. They were too thick in the head to understand this and realize it, but Jesus told them this. 
if we're in the book of Luke, and even we rewind back to Luke chapter 9, in verses 20 through 22, then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, Christ, the Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one at this time, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribe and be killed and on the third day be raised. Jesus told them straight out exactly what was going to happen. Jesus came into this world knowing what was going to happen. He came into this world fulfilling uh, this this plan of, of God for him to come down and suffer and die at the hands of sinful men for our salvation. Jesus came for this purpose. The Bible is clear that the crucifixion of Jesus Christ is part of God's foreordained plan. In the book of Acts, in the preaching of the apostles, we see this really clearly. Acts 2, 23 says, This Jesus delivered up according to the, get this, the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. That this was part of God's, it was part of a plan. It was a definite plan. God knew it in advance. He planned this in advance. It wasn't indefinite that maybe it'll happen. We'll see. It was the playing the odds. This was part of the plan. In Acts 4, 27 through 28. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you appointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Again, this is saying that this, uh, the crucifixion was according to whatever God's hand had planned and predestined to take place. And so this is, again, what we see in Luke 24, 7, when it said, the angel said, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and crucified and rise on the third day. There's a huge application to this. And we need to believe this. We need to take it to heart. Whether it's in us going through this situation uh, with the COVID-19 epidemic and all of the ramifications, whether that hits you physically with the uh, the actual illness um, or not, we're all feeling it. It's disrupted plans, school schedules. uh, People are being hit economically really hard. And people aren't, aren't working. We don't know what's going to happen. But through this all, and whether it's this situation or w- the next hard thing that happens, a huge takeaway that I, I hope and I want you to believe from this is that if it's true that God was in control and that he was, had planned out and was using the worst thing that has ever happened, the most evil thing that has ever happened, the the crucifixion of the Son of God, if that can be part of God's plan, and if God can work through that evil thing and use that for good, then how much more will he be able to work through any of these other things? Whether it is the coronavirus situation or what's going on with your your finances and your work situation or, or what happens next week or next year, the same God will superintend these things. 
The same God will work his good even through this. Nothing is taking God by surprise. I want you to believe that because there, there are some people that don't. Even the, the past few weeks, I've read articles uh, by, by theologians writing articles, one saying God is not in control. Another article by N.T. Wright, who uh, many people just revere as this heavyweight theologian, writing in Time magazine with an article with the title, Christianity offers no answers about the coronavirus, and it's not supposed to. Now, okay, COVID-19 is not named by name in Scripture, but there are so many principles that if we understand and we believe what Scripture teaches helps us to make sense of this. We do live in a fallen world. We live in a world that is fractured because of sin. But we also live in a world that is under God's control and that he is superintending even evil things and using them and going to bring out good because of these things. Scripture teaches, and we've seen this in these verses we just read, in Acts 2 and Acts 4 and and Luke 24, that the Bible teaches both divine sovereignty and human responsibility at the same time. In all situations, not just in the good times. The God's in control when things are going good. But when things are going bad, well, I guess something else is happening. God, I don't know, his hand slipped off the wheel or something like that. Nope, God is, uh, he is sovereign down to the detail in, in everything. I honestly believe that. And I believe scripture all throughout from beginning to end teaches that. And Scripture also teaches at the same time, and we have to hold these two truths together, also teaches human responsibility. We saw that in the verses we looked at. That it said that in Acts 2, 23, that you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. They're being held responsible for this. When it talks about Herod and Pontius Pilate, you know, they're not uh, just being let off the hook because, well, it's part of God's plan, so um, they're... it doesn't matter what they did. We don't believe in a weird kind of fatalism like that. And even in Luke 24, 7, you must be delivered into the hands of sinful men that people are still held responsible for their decisions, for their actions. And so at the same time that we remember that God is in control of all things, we also, also need to remember we're responsible for our choices, we're responsible for our actions, and that our actions do have consequences. And we need to think through that also just in this time as well, with the the corona-19, that the things that we do, we can't just say, well, God's in control, and so let's be careless. We need to think through what are the wise things, what are the precautions, the things that we need to do. And we also need to be praying, and I hope you are, daily for our leaders at every level, that they make wise decisions because the decisions they make have consequences as well. So Jesus' death had to happen, one, because God planned it, but also for our salvation. Now, there's a sense where I guess Jesus wouldn't have had to go to the cross. This wouldn't have had to happen if God had also not wanted to save you and to save me and to offer salvation to anyone that will turn from the rebellion and turn and trust Jesus Christ as their Savior. But the truth is, if Jesus hadn't done this, if Jesus hadn't died on the cross, there would be no hope for any of us to be saved. Because we have sinned, and the wages of our sin is is death. And that's not just physical death, but that's 
spiritual death, eternal death. And the only way to fix that was for the Son of God to come down and to live a perfect life and to die a death as a substitute for sinners. And so if God was going to save someone, this is what had to happen. Because God could not, he would not, he could not just say, eh, sin's not a big deal. I don't care what you did. Let's, let's just say sin, no problem. No, because God is holy and he is a just God. And he isn't going to and can't just rip that part of him out of who he is so that he can save us. I, I guess I'll just remove holiness from me so I can, I can save people. I'll, just, I'll stop being a God that is full of justice so I, so I can save people. He had to find a way that he could both be loving and gracious and, and merciful, but also remain the holy, just God that he is that does have a holy wrath against sin. And so that's why Jesus came down. That's why when Jesus prayed, uh, you know, Father, you know, if there's any other way, take this cup from me. But Jesus didn't have this cup of death taken from him. He still had to go through it because there wasn't another way. It had to be Jesus because the sacrifice, our substitute, needed to be someone that was both fully God and fully human. That it needed to be someone that was innocent. We are not. So none of us, you and I, we are not qualified to be a savior because if you're drowning, you can't save other people yourselves. Jesus was, was innocent, and as, as God, he needed to be God so that his sacrifice was of enough value to pay for the sins of, of everyone and anyone, anyone that will trust him as their, their Savior, that the blood of Christ has enough value in what he did because he's God to pay for the sins of a, of, of a thousand billion worlds over and over. And he also had to be a human being in order to pay for the sins of human beings. To be a new Adam. Uh, the original Adam brought death into this world. And the new Adam, this Christ, brings life into this world. And so, he had to be delivered into the hands of sinful men for God's plan and for our salvation. And finally, we see from the words of these, uh, these angels that Jesus is risen. We see that Jesus defeats death with life. Jesus defeats death with life. Let me read the end of uh, this, this passage again. Starting with verse 6 again. He is not here, but has risen Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And then we see the reaction to this. And they remembered his words. Oh yeah, Jesus did. <laughs> he did say that. And returning uh, from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven, to the other apostles and to the rest. And it tells us it was Mary Magdalene and Jonah and Mary, the mother of James, and other women with them who told these things to the apostles. Which, by the way, it's significant that in all the Gospels, it's uh, these women that are the first ones to, to, uh, to know about Christ and uh, to proclaim this. If you were making this up in that day and age, you wouldn't have done that because 
in that culture, the witness of women wasn't considered credible. And so it wouldn't even, if you were just making this up, this isn't what you would do. You would have incredible people, you know, finding uh, this, people that, you know, were listening to the, the experts and the, uh, the important people. But this is written this way because this is what happened. It's actually a mark of credibility to us that this is the truth. Verse 11, but these words seemed to be an, to them an idle tale. And they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stopping and looking, and he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. So we see the resurrection. And we see from this that first, the resurrection is a, is a reversal of physical death. In his writing, C.S. Lewis described the resurrection as death running backwards. I, I love that description of resurrection, what that is, death and all this stuff that we experience, that God one day will make that run backwards for all of us. Read 1 Corinthians 15. It talks about this. That death will run backwards. Uh, that the, and the dead in Christ being raised. But it's already happened for Jesus. He's the first fruit. He's the first one to have this. You know, earlier in the message, I, I mentioned pistachios. And I said how, you know, it's like you have a bowl of pistachios and, you know, that's, you're, you're reaching in the wrong bowl here if you're looking for the living in the, in the graveyard. Every illustration has its flaws, and that one has a big one. Because when you have a bowl of pistachio shells, I mean, what do you do with it afterwards? Um, now, I guess maybe there's some of you that could arts and craft it, I guess. But most, you take it and you just, you dump it in the garbage. The shells are just waste. They're just, they're just nothing. You don't need them anymore. And I think so many people, they think that's what our body is like. It's just this shell that we have for a while. And afterwards, we're liberated from the shell, and the shell, I guess we're just done with it and just junk it. It's it's nothing. But that is not the biblical picture. And resurrection confirms that that is not the biblical teaching. That it's not that the the final glorious thing is to be liberated from this this shell that gets thrown away but to be reunited that you were meant to have a physical half and a immaterial half that your soul and your body are supposed to come back together and that's what resurrection really is it's this repair this reuniting in in a higher more glorious more permanent way so that after this you're never going to be able to come apart again that it is, it is a reversal of physical death in the sense where it is, it is a permanent reversal. So rather than, you know, uh, thinking of death as like pistachio shells, and maybe you can come up with a better illustration, but you think you go to a garage where your car's being worked on, and something's going wrong, and, and you're there, and your, your car, you see it, you know, it's up on the jacks, and uh, the motor's been taken out, and your car's not going to run now because the motor's been taken out. It's all in pieces. It's kind of what death is like. The parts of us are, that make us up, that are essential, are separated, and we're not working. I mean, to be a believer, it's a believer to be absent from the body is present with the Lord, so it's, it's different there. You're with God. But the ultimate victory is when you're put back together, when the, the engine is repaired, where you're, you're put back in and you're whole again. That's what resurrection was for Jesus, and that's what it is for us as well. So the resurrection is a reversal of physical death, the resurrection is a historical fact. This is not a myth. This is not a metaphor. It's a historical reality. And I think it's so great for us that these apostles, they were skeptical. Did you notice that? 
They just didn't just jump up and say, oh, good, we were expecting this. We knew all along this would happen. They, they thought, this can't be true. This can't be what's going on. But they went and investigated, and eventually they were convinced that this was the truth. And this shows us that believing Jesus is risen isn't just believing a bunch of wild-eyed fanatics that'll believe anything. They were skeptical, but they were also able to be persuaded by the truth of what they saw, the, the truth of the risen Christ that encountered them. God opening their eyes for them to believe this. This is something that can be checked out. They looked into it. And even for us today, if you analyze it historically, that those who have looked into this seriously without starting with the assumption that resurrection's impossible have come to the rightful conclusion that the, the best explanation for what happened and why there's Christianity and why these early believers were willing to have their lives changed and willing to risk and die for this, the best explanation is that there really was an empty tomb. They really did encounter, were encountered by the living, resurrected Christ. This really did happen. The resurrection is a truth to be believed. And maybe you're listening to this and you're still a skeptic. And I pray that that God would help you to see the truth of this, to see how much uh, the resurrection and just that the God, uh, his existence makes this world make sense in a way that doesn't make sense without him. That this is truth to be believed and the resurrection is also a truth to share. These women, they told the apostles and later on, we're going to see them telling other people about Christ. And for all of us, we believe this, but we don't just keep it to ourselves. We share this with others. So you see, all of this is so important. All of this is so critical, and even now to the world that we live in. And we are thinking about how do we slow down a death for some people? How do we prevent it? And we, we ought to. But in the end, we don't just need death to be slowed down. We need death to run backwards. And this is what happened to Jesus Christ. And this is what will happen to all who trust in him, in the risen Christ, for their salvation. And I hope and pray that that is you. Let's pray. Lord God, we come to you in the name of the living and raised Jesus Christ. Lord and Savior, the Christ, the Son of God, the Son of Man, who we confess gave his life on the cross for us, that according to your predetermined plan, let this happen to him, that he went willingly to the cross for our salvation. Lord, for everyone listening to this that has already trusted Jesus Christ as their Savior, I thank you for that. May you... Uh, help them to keep believing that day by day and to live that out. And Lord, anyone here that has not yet trusted Jesus Christ, anyone hearing this, may you work in their heart. May they turn from their rebellion and turn to you as the only one that can save them from the ultimate death. Not just physical death, but eternal and spiritual death, Lord God. Because you have taken it. You have defeated death. And you have been raised victorious. And so we worship 
when we praise our living Savior today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.